Welcome, everyone, to another special edition of Clerically Speaking. And uh, this one is with my good friend, uh, Michael Heinlein, who's here to talk to us about his Cardinal George books. But first, just like, uh, welcome, Michael, to the uh, to Clerically Speaking. Thanks so much for having me. This is really the only time we allow lay people on the podcast is when <laughs> Father Ant- when we're doing a special episode because they're not worthy of our usual weekly drop. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, we're talking about a cleric, right? So, well, this is kind of why I was pretty much okay with it. You know, the last one I did with a lay person was with Daniel Drain, and we talked about Balthazar. He was a priest. We're fine. You know, so as long as we're talking about cleric, as long as it's it's majority cleric content, we're good. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, why don't you tell people about, a bit about yourself before we kind of get into the book? Well, I'm a, a husband, father of three, author and editor. I do a lot of freelance work with our Sunday visitor mm-hmm. um, and co-wrote a book with you, of course. I was going to say, you, you, you co-wrote a book with a pretty awesome guy. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> and uh have a new book out on the life of cardinal francis george yeah no it's great and um just briefly so my, uh, i think it's actually kind of fun just as a little pre-thing before this like so you and i became friends through twitter where we this is another one of those twitter friendships which is great and i think it kind of started to develop when you had reached out oh you want to write something for simply catholic right and then and then we talk on the phone Right, and then the pandemic hit. We had written, we wrote, folks. We wrote that book. We had still not met in person yet. That's right. <laughs> and now I'm Godfather twenty years children <laughs> to John, who I pray for at every mass. I pray for all my Godchildren in every mass. So um, thank you. Uh, but yeah, so it's great. No, so uh, yeah, so Michael's got this great book on this great biography on the life of uh, Cardinal George, uh, Cardinal Francis George, uh, former Archbishop of Chicago, and so. I mean, I'm sure the questions will kind of intersperse with this a bit first, but maybe why don't we start with this? Why Car- Why would you write a book on Cardinal George? Well, I was um, thinking you might ask that question, and I'd tell your listeners a little arithmetic uh, equation. Uh, Cardinal George is to me as blank is to Father Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. <laughs> it's pretty much a drinking so, game on the podcast by now. Whenever Ratzinger has right. mentioned, it's uh, take a drink. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And uh, I think other people say that about me. So with Cardinal George. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I grew up in uh, Northwest Indiana, so I was just in the outskirts of Chicago. And I remember when he was appointed in 1997, Chicago is always... Uh, in the media world, they're driven uh, with interest in the church. And so uh, when the Catholic things happen in Chicago, it's usually headline news. And um, so I, I remember seeing him, in, uh, you know, from the first moments that he came back home to Chicago as uh, the eighth archbishop. And yeah, at first I was attracted to his quirkiness, to his character, to his sense of humor uh, you know, at that age, I was only in grade school. And then by the time I got high school, college, especially uh, the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., I was very much attracted to his teaching and to his brilliance and to his clarity and also to his authenticity and integrity. And um, and then he he died in 2015. At that point, I was teaching high school theology and uh you know like so many other people i felt a real void with his death 
and you know just constantly was thinking about how how can we keep his name alive how can we keep his legacy alive and who am i to have much of a role in that but what can i do and uh at first i had thought you know uh, maybe it would be a good idea to try to collect some of his columns and that kind of went in a different direction and some people were really nudging me to uh write a biography because no one was really stepping up to do that and he deserved one but again, who am I? I'm not a trained biographer or anything like that. But uh, I think I had the skill set to pull it off. Um, it took a while. You know, you had to get kind of uh, prepared. I always have read biographies. I love doing research, both academically and privately, like genealogical research and spending time in archives and stuff, digging into deep questions. So um, anyway, I thought I'd give it a shot and see where God led. And uh, so here we are about six seven years later uh we have the book but cardinal george in my opinion uh was simply uh, one of the most consequential american bishops that the church has had in this country and um he had a he had a life uh filled with many accomplishments but i think one of the greatest accomplishments accomplishments of his life was simply his virtue and his character so uh hopefully uh the book is a is an equal combination mm -hmm. of of, of those things. When you were kind of growing in interest with him. Yeah. Cause it's interesting what you're saying there. I, I think in some ways, yes, it's actually very similar to my kind of interest with uh, Ratzinger where it kind of just happened a bit by happenstance. But after my conversion, I'm like, Oh, I read call to communion. I'm like, Oh, this is really interesting stuff. I didn't understand half of it at the time, but yeah, it's just, it just, and it's just, it's amazing how these little formative moments early on in our, as we're maturing in our faith, uh, they stick these these God puts these figures in our lives to just be these these um, bulwarks during during the Christian the Christian journey of of these men who uh, we may not even get to know well intimately but we know well intimately you know like uh, men and women Absolutely, right there's, there's no. religious sisters doing everything yeah 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 no I I would say you know just as much as with you knowing uh, the works of Brad Singer and getting into his mind. I would say the same thing. I mean, mm -hmm. I I feel like Francis George is a friend. You know, he's someone yep. I talk to every day. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, you spend that much time on somebody, you can't escape that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But, uh, but you know, uh, as you mentioned uh, about, like, you know, getting to know him, being attracted by what he did. I mean, I the years of his episcopacy, particularly in Chicago, he was he was a forefront voice on a lot of thorny issues that the church was dealing with both ad intra and ad extra. And so, uh, you know, as any Catholic who's trying to make sense of the various things that we're facing, he, he always had a, a fresh nuanced, um, helpful, unifying approach to things. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. so that was, I think one of the main kind of draws to him mm -hmm. for me. Do you, was there um, when he became Archbishop there was there was there something that you had read by him initially that really struck you that you remember by chance or like I know he wrote a lot of columns or you know homilies or was it just kind of just kind of exposure? Yeah, I mean at that age I was only like eleven or something. Oh, okay, so, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. I was Sorry, I later was, on. Later on, had a different. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, I had a. Now looking back on those years, you know, yeah. I certainly. Uh, looked into some of the things he said at his installation or his press right. conference upon appointment and stuff like that. 
but you know at that age uh i guess i was an odd kid of course to be interested in the new say. archbishop of chicago but uh you know it wasn't it wasn't necessarily uh because of his ideas at that time mm-hmm. okay um so just briefly like when you started to write the biography then did you have it in mind like oh this is going to get published or you're just like i want to just start researching this man or is it a bit of both? When I started, or? I yeah. When I started, I didn't have a publisher, mm-hmm. um, so I was you know looking for options and talking to people, and everybody was like, "Well, who are you?" Naturally, mm-hmm. why are you doing this? Uh, mm-hmm. I needed to travel for research, so I needed to go to a variety of places because he lived all around the world, around mm-hmm. the country. Uh, lived in Rome for twelve years. So I needed to do some travel and I needed some funding to do that. And so, uh, you know, I was kind of keen on <laughs> needing to get a publisher before I, I kind of finished the work, which is the sort of normal course, I guess. But, um, uh, yeah, I just, I just knew I, I, it was an experience of prayer that really drew me to kind of mm-hmm. commit myself to this, that, mm-hmm. you know, just talking to a variety of, of key players who were important in the Cardinal's life and, hearing stories and hearing, you know, um, people who were approached to write a biography and didn't have time or interest. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of fell on my lap in some ways. Mm-hmm. It, I, mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily seek it out. As I said, I was thinking of other things that I could do to kind of help, you know, could I collate columns for somebody, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just wanted to do what I could to keep the Cardinal's name alive. And, mm-hmm. um, and it, so it ended up this way. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'm grateful. I'm very mm-hmm. grateful for the opportunity to mm-hmm. have delved into his life as much as I was able. Right. Um, one of the most important things for me was speaking to so many people who knew him well, going all the way back to his childhood. And, you know, uh, since the time I started this book in 2017, uh, over a dozen of those people have died. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I'm the only one that has kind of harnessed their memories of Cardinal George and my book wouldn't be what it is without those. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So, okay. So we've kind of talked about getting ready to write a book. It's a, as we know, book writing is an endeavor. (laughs) It is an endeavor. Um, It's got its ups and its downs. It's got a stumbling box. It's, 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 uh, it's difficulties, but um it's also got its joys. And I think for, for this book, especially because even like reading it, I, I, I recall um, just thinking like, I could just tell that you're, you're, you're working hard to be that good objective author in a biography, but at the same time, but you love what you're studying. Right. And, and I think like, this is a very important thing. We, we have this weird sense that to be objective means to be dispassionate. Mm. And I don't get that from the book, right? Like I could tell that you loved what you were writing about, that you saw in a man, a man who loves Christ in his church, and that you saw that as something that's honorable and imitatable and worthy to be known for others. And you can just tell just by reading it that you can just tell that uh, of the influence that that Fran- that Cardinal George has had in that for you. So like you really, you really, the love really comes out in that. So. I think it's going to be important because I think actually too, as we were just talking about beforehand, before we started recording, you know, as I think about it, I'm like, yeah, well, that's like eight years ago he died. Um, 
And we have a lot of listeners who are in their early 20s. I have no clue who he even is. And even older listeners who they came back to the faith or aren't really kind of on top of whose cardinals and bishops wear or anything like that. So I think it might be helpful if you're open to it, to just give like a brief overview of, of his of his life. And then we can talk about maybe some of his more concrete achievements because I think he has a very unique life. Um, maybe actually, sorry, mm. before we do that, um, did you ever get a chance to meet him? I did, yeah, yeah. several times actually. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a student at Catholic University in Washington, he was on the board of trustees and so he would be in D.C. quite a bit. And he was also vice president and president of the Bishops' Conference at the time. So he was he was in town a lot. And right. uh, I remember the first time I met him was outside of the dining hall at the university. <laughs> there was a whole all the bishops were there because they met in D.C. still at the time before they moved back to Baltimore. And uh, I remember asking somebody uh, if Cardinal George was there and they led me to him mm-hmm. and introduced me to him. And uh, he was so human, personable, yeah. kind, yeah. Uh, yeah. welcoming, warm, uh, laughable. You know, he just latched on to me because I, I told him where I was from, what town I grew up in, Northwest Indiana. And he knew immediately because he had an aunt and uncle that had lived there. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I saw him after that, he would refer to me. Uh, by my hometown, <laughs> <laughs> I am. I, um, yeah, I, I was. I was as I was leading into. Let's give a life. I'm like, no, wait, I want to talk about this first because I think it's actually very important. It it, it kind of warms the heart in the right way to understand to, to enter into his life. Because I got to meet him once. I met him once in Edmonton uh, when I was in seminary. He came out to do a talk. They were doing a capital campaign to fundraise for the new seminary building because the old one had to be torn down because the city essentially appropriated the land for itself or whatever, you know, how it works for highways. Um, and so he came out to do the, the inaugural talk for the the campaign and I'm just walking around the hall and he's just kind of walking. Like, it's kind of like, there's no, there's no fanfare or anything almost. I mean, maybe yeah. this is the Canadian thing. I don't know, but it was just, and he was just kind of doing his thing. And I, I said, Oh, Hey, your evidence. Thank you for your talk. And he, he t- shook my hand. He goes, Oh, well, where are you from? And I'm like, Oh, I'm from Vancouver. Oh, okay. Yeah. We get, well, you know, we had, Oh, my, my missionaries all the way up here and everything. And then I, I said to him, and I said, I just, you know, my, my, my mom is also, uh, also had polio when she was a child. And, um, and so he just latched onto that for a bit and we just had a, a it was just a five minute encounter. I like, I still, like, it's still, it's one of those encounters. That's weird that like, it's, I can it. I still see the moment. I can hear the sounds. It was just uh, that's and, how unique and attractive he right. was as a person, right? Right. Because you were the center of his world when he was talking to you. That's right. And he didn't let being a cardinal. Oh, well, you're a seminarian. I'm not going to talk to you, uh, or whatever, or like letting like his status or anything in the way for for him. For him, it was just no. You're you're the human you're being. You're a brother God's, in Christ. Yeah, your brother in Christ is in front of me, and I want to talk to you. And that was just. I was always really touched by that. And I think. Uh, you know, that little five minute encounter is still very memorable to me today. So, um, what year yeah. would that have been? Oh my gosh, that probably would have been 2009, I want to okay. think. So, he was still president of the U.S. Bishops Conference then. I think so. I think it was 2009 because they were doing the fundraising, but they hadn't finished building the. It could have been 2008, but 2008, 2009, somewhere around there, I think. Yeah, it would have I'm been. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so. Um, Very yeah. busy man, in other words, at that yeah. time. A cardinal, president of the Bishop's Conference. And- but I think he wanted to go up to Canada because he knew the OMI. Like That's the thing. He was always an OMI at heart, too, right? And so he, he and the OMIs have a very, especially in Alberta, they have a very uh, 
they had a very strong presence there. Uh, um, and so he knew that. And I think that was part of the reason he wanted to go up. So, yeah, it was a really, really cool encounter. So with all that now, with our, our little stories of our encounters with him, let's hear a bit about his life and like just a little overview. And, and then we can kind of get into some of the uh, more interesting things that we think or why he's so important for us today. Well, he was born uh, a little early, about a month early, and spent his first days in the family bathroom, uh, where it was <laughs> the warmest spot in the house, his sister told me. And uh, he, uh, the family moved to uh, northwest side of Chicago when he uh, was about four, and uh, he enrolled at St. Paschal School, which became the center of his life, the parish and the school. And it was on his first communion day there in 1945 that he first heard God's call to be a priest. Uh, he was very close to the pastor. He served mass a lot, helped out around the church doing odd jobs. He lived a couple blocks away and the priest would call over when, you know, he needed some boys in the neighborhood to help him with projects. And the young Franny was always one of them who would be there. And, uh, so when he was in eighth grade, he was he was planning to go to uh, high school seminary, which was the normal course of events for a young boy in Chicago who wanted to become a priest. And uh, anyway, uh, God intervened in such a way that uh, he contracted polio in the middle of his eighth grade year, spent a couple months in the hospital. And by the end of things, he graduated at the top of his class in eighth grade, but uh, the the, the, the Quigley Preparatory Seminary, the high school seminary, said, you can come to be a student here, although we think it'll be hard for you because a couple bus transfers is necessary to get downtown. So we'll take you as a student, but just know this, because of your disability, uh, you'll never be a priest in Chicago. That's a heavy thing for a 13-year-old to have to deal with, especially when he had been kind of thinking about this for the last five years, six years. So... Um, his whole life really kind of changed course then at that point at 13. Um, but there was something that I learned from his sister who's um, still with us. She's in her nineties, but sharp as a tack. Um, just like her brother too, I might add, if you ever get the chance to talk to her. But um, uh, she told me that when he was in the hospital, there was a man who shared a room with him and he told their mother, Mrs. George, that they would chat, chat once in a while, and then he'd fall silent. The little Franny would fall silent. And this man would look over at him, and he said he'd be staring right at the cross silently. And that, I think, is how he made sense of the rest of his life. Um, mm -hmm. so, so there at 13, told that he couldn't be a priest in Chicago, um, his, his best friend from grade school had an uncle who was an oblate of Mary Immaculate priest. And they ran a high school seminary in Illinois, but it was quite a trek down to Belleville, which is right across the Mississippi from St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And um, there he goes off uh, in his own words to heck with you guys. <laughs> he, he knew that God had another plan. And um, so he, he went down and uh, on crutches on a train by himself uh, with no comforts whatsoever, really uh, totally foreign environment, no family. And um, the rest is history, I guess. Uh, mm. So he, he spent six years there um, 
in high school and then first two years of college. And then nearby there, he after he decided finally to commit himself to the OMIs, uh, he entered the novitiate, uh, which was uh, in Godfrey, Illinois, just north of Belleville, and spent a year there and professed first vows. And then um, went to study theology at their seminary in Past Christian, Mississippi, which is right on the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, spent two years there, and they, they thought, wait, Franny is so intellectually gifted. He should go to Rome. <clears throat> and his his seminary faculty really wanted him to go to Rome. <clears throat> but his physical disability right. would have been a real barrier for living in Rome. Plus, let's and be honest, so, Rome is, uh, is not as... It's not as high end academically sometimes as it might be made out to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, so they sent him somewhere better. They sent him to yeah. Canada. Heck yeah. <laughs> so he went to Ottawa where the OMIs had uh, the University of Ottawa, now yep. St. Paul's. Mm-hmm. And um, he finished up theology there, was ordained a deacon there. Ended up being ordained a priest back home in Chicago. A uh, mm-hmm. really, really cold day in December of 1963, which was a kind of odd thing. The OMIs didn't normally do that, but uh, just worked out the circumstances of his studying there and timing and no other classmates. All, all those things kind of played together. And I ironically was ordained back at his home parish in Chicago. Um, and then, you know, as an oblate missionary, he could have been sent anywhere in the world mm-hmm. for his first assignment. Um, but, uh, with his intellectual gifts, such as they were, they decided to send him back to the seminary in Mississippi to be on the faculty, uh, philosophy faculty. And, uh, he started his doctorate at first doctorate, uh, of two, um, at Tulane university in American philosophy and, uh, finished that up in the late sixties. And by that time they had closed the seminary in Mississippi. And so he moved to Creighton, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Creighton University in, in uh, Omaha and um, was chair of the philosophy department there within a year. So and just bef- before we continue on, can I, I want to kind of ask a quick follow-up question because I think this is important. Why did he choose that field of philosophy? Well, <clears throat> my understanding is that uh, it was something that was a, a close place to study because Past Christian was only about an hour or a little more uh, to New Orleans where Tulane was. And they had a big, big, big focus on American philosophy there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was kind of where their faculty was taking the direction of their school at the time. And we're talking uh, stuff like pragma- more, we're talking stuff like pragmatism and everything, right? Yeah. 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 But I think, you know, when you look at that sort of stuff, doesn't it make sense for a, a missionary uh, to right you know, kind of understand the culture and the, exactly. the underpinnings of American society and the way we exactly. think and the way we act. So yeah. uh, I think that that was a crucial part into making Francis George who he was. Hmm. Yeah, no, um, that's, yeah, I think that it was interesting. Cause I remember when I was reading the book, like finding like the, the particular things he was studying, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this sounds so dry and boring. <laughs> well, the dissertation is not the most exciting thing in the world. Right. To read. <laughs> but it shows you that missionary heart that says, no, but I want to enter into, uh, I want to enter into the culture to bring Christ there and to find Christ there. And to, yeah, and he was training priests at the time too. Exactly. So, you know, was, so you understood like really what apolo- like true apologetics is, right? Which is not this, oh, I'm going to argue into my position. No, it's like, I'm going to actually understand everything of where you come from. And to show you how Christ is the fulfillment of it. 
Yep, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's what it really prepared him for. It was, he spoke of that as a very interesting time because uh, it was such a secular environment. He wasn't allowed to wear the collar on campus hmm. uh, when he was a student. Um, most of his colleagues were agnostics or atheists. And so uh, he, he said he had to just talk and talk and talk and prove, you know, their suspicions were wrong. That why did we admit this priest? You know, they, were, they didn't even want to admit him at first mm -hmm. as a student. But he said he just talked and talked and talked and eventually wore him down. And uh, I wait, think that works found in him. Yeah, apparently. Oh, <laughs> maybe I have a superpower I didn't even know about. <laughs> just talk a lot. <laughs> yeah, he liked to do that. Uh, you talk to people who lived with him in, in religious life, and <laughs> they said they'd, they'd need a nap after breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, so anyway, by his mm. by his early thirties, he's dean of the philosophy department at Creighton University in Nebraska, and then um, he go he's elected to be a um, participant in the Oblates General Chapter, mm -hmm. which was in Rome in 1972, and uh, you know that was a very uh, contentious time in the church, mm -hmm. of course, and. Um, so he he was um, well maybe what uh, thirty five I guess um, at the time, and uh, he he was kind of a rising star in the community, and they wanted him in a position of leadership, but he kind of talked them out of it. But they did elect an American Superior General, mm -hmm. and uh, he. Uh, finding some of his writings, he was a little hesitant about about him, it seemed, but maybe for good reason, because within about a year and a half or so, he resigned, mm -hmm. uh, apparently had a relationship with a religious woman and couldn't keep up the double life or whatever. And um, the Oblates were kind of thrown into turmoil at that time. Right. So here we are, the, the chapters are only supposed to be every six years. And so here we are two years later. Uh, they're in a chapter again to mm -hmm. elect a new superior general. And they thought it would just kind of be a pro forma sort of thing to elect a new person. But it turned out to be a very pivotal uh, chapter for the congregation. Um, so they wanted Francis George as superior general. And this was after everybody thought, well, we'll never elect an American again after the, what this one did to us, <laughs> the first American. And uh, Francis George also said, well, hey, guys, I'm only, you know, in my 30s. I'm not really prepared for this role mm -hmm. um so they elected a, a rather reserved introverted um canadian uh, father fernand jete mm -hmm. who had actually been the spiritual director of francis george when he was in ottawa hmm. in the seminary and um he pushed hard for francis george to be his number two his vicar general yeah and so he was elected at that 1974 chapter to be vicar general he had been provincial for that time between the two chapters um which was still quite astonishing for his young age. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, in 1974, he's moving to Rome as number two of a congregation with about 6,500 priests all around the globe. Mm -hmm. And uh, his life was thrown into a situation that he never would have imagined himself. Right. Yeah. But as he said, and this is a beautiful thing about him, uh, as he said that toward the end of his life, looking back on things, he said, my life wasn't, my own project he said it was, it was it, i was always about saying yes and being obedient to what i was asked to do 
Yep. And, uh, you know, that's something I think that can resonate with all of us. Mm-hmm. So much of his life, I think, mm-hmm. really resonate. You know, going back to the polio mm-hmm. and you think about rejected by the church, you know, so mm-hmm. many of us can feel wounded by the church for good or for ill. And, mm-hmm. You know, what did he do? What did he do with that? He stared at the cross. He, <laughs> he stared at the cross. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So he's there. So then what, what is he? Because he was bishop of Yakima, right? No. Yeah, no, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, Yakima? Or is that right? Yeah, after 12 yeah. years in Rome, uh, yeah. he went back. He came back to the States. He was in Boston uh, helping out get a think tank started called the Cambridge Center for Faith and Culture. Mm-hmm. And um, and then uh, it's an interesting story. He became bishop of Yakima in 1990, although the plan was for him to stay at that, that institute and Cardinal Bernard Law, who was Archbishop of Boston at the time, had a real heavy hand in starting that center. And he needed Francis George for it to be successful. And he was going back and forth, I found, in some correspondence with the Oblate Provincial, saying, we need Francis George. No, we need Francis George. No, we need... And uh, so the, the Oblates eventually uh, put their foot down, so we're taking him back. And then uh, about 10 days later, he was named a bishop. (laughs) (laughs) Bernie Law had intervened. Um, So he was sent to to, uh, Yakima, Washington, which is in central Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of um, minority populations there, Hispanic, because it's a a big uh, farm area. So there are large migrant uh, working population and then a large Native American population as well. So uh, really, the Anglo's were mm-hmm. um, not a super majority by any stretch. Right. And so the first thing he did was go learn Spanish in Mexico before he went there. Wow. And then, and how long was he in Yakima for? He was there a little over five years. Five years. And uh, by the time he left, the local newspaper, uh, the, the Yakima newspaper, referred to him as the good bishop on the headline mm-hmm. page. Uh, he was really beloved that, by everybody. Yeah. It's kind of a good, Unifying that's a good, figure. that's a, that I think that's actually a great little uh, name for him, title for him. But he just, it kind of, yeah, it he, he, it, it, it's, it's that warmth of his person kind of encapsulated. Yeah. yeah I mean, it was, it, it is, it's his, his ability to relate to people. Mm-hmm. He was always the last to leave events. You know, he was even, even um, as a Cardinal, uh, the same was true. Um, but he also, you know, never compromised on the faith. And he was so clear in the way that he approached all sorts of issues. Uh, in Yakima, he had a major um, kind of uh, fight between the Hispanic and Anglo communities over, you know, human dignity mm-hmm. and rights and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And he was able to broker a real peace because both sides respected him and trusted right. him. And, I think like, yeah, the phrase know, I often use like lately, I'm like, there's, it's the right sense of it's the it's broad-mindedness in the best sense of the word right where it's like a confident right right, where it's a confidence in the truth but it's a confidence in the truth that is such that the truth will not be destroyed even if the other side doesn't agree with it and i can talk to them and i can see what's still a little bit true there and i'm going to do my best and i'm and i'm dealing with persons etc right like all these little things are there that it's it's broad-minded where it says yes this is the truth of the faith but we also know that there's a lot of work for people to come to it, or there is, there's all these different issues and, and there are a lot of wounds and there's all these different particular issues that people are going through where it can be a struggle to come to this. And so he won't compromise, but he also won't be a jerk about it essentially. Yep. 
That's yeah. right. That speaking yeah. the truth in charity mm-hmm. in a way that unites. That's yeah. that's the heart of, of yeah. his ministry. Yeah. And then he goes for a very brief, like I was still shocked by this, a very brief stint in Portland. <laughs> like what, year and a half? Yeah. Yeah. You, no, it was 11 no. months. 11 months. Um, like that is so, that is just not normal. <laughs> no. And he, he agreed with that, <laughs> that sentiment and tried to talk the nuncio out of the assignment <laughs> mm-hmm. <Right. laughs> when he was told to leave Portland and go to Chicago after mm-hmm. only 10 months when he got the call. Um, wow. But he adamantly would tell people later on, I was there 11 months, though. I was there, I was there 11 months. <laughs> but he, he felt that it was unjust to the people. That was his yeah. argument. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I think he's right. Yeah. Uh, but there are greater goods. And I think his move to Chicago was certainly a greater good. Yeah, I don't think he would have been able to do what he did as easily from Portland, at least. And and again, like no. you said, because of the focus on the church in Chicago, because of its, because of the centrality of the church of Chicago in so many ways in the, in the American landscape and, and just Chicago itself, right? Like it's, it's, it's a hub for flying and everything. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's an American hub. Um, it, it really plays a vital part in American civil and ecclesial life. And so being placed there for a person of his, ilk it's it's really the perfect place oh yeah no no question about it and it was a beautiful thing too you know like a line of god's poetry that he went back having been told you can't be a priest here and here he is the cornerstone like that was rejected right Mm -hmm. (laughs) so so the he's so is this 1997 right that he is 97 yeah he was appointed and then he's there and then how long is he archbishop until when does he, he retire? He retired in uh, 2014, the first right. Archbishop of Chicago to retire. But wow. his retirement was hastened by a, a third bout with cancer. And right. He was really weak at that time. Right. So, so, so it's, it's really like Chicago is where he really comes into his own in terms of exercising influence in the life of the church, in his local church, the America, the church in America and the universal church. So I think it's like a good place to say, to start asking like, okay, what are... What are what are your, like what are your, some of your the key achievements that you think that the church wouldn't be where it is today without him? Well, I think that uh, you know any cardinal, of course, has roles and conclaves that mm-hmm. uh, others right. don't. So yeah. I I know he was one of the most respected <laughs> participants in the two conclaves he participated in mm-hmm. in two thousand five and, and two thousand thirteen. Um, and then, you know, internationally, he was involved in a lot of um, uh, curial uh, work, various assignments in the curia, the liturgy being one of the top um, uh, areas of influence that okay. he exercised. Hmm. Uh, of course, the, the English translation of the Roman Missal that we use mm-hmm. uh, with his involvement in ISIL and Vox Clara and uh, U.S. Bishop's uh, uh, liturgy uh, chairman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he 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 had a heavy hand in uh, the translation that we use at mass. So when we pray with the words at mass, we can hear things that Francis George's fingerprints are all over, such as the word oblation. Anytime you hear that in the missal, <laughs> that was his, the oblates, that was his the battle. oblates. Yes, yes, and his life was. I never oblation. That's hilarious. I love that. <laughs> yep, he won that battle. That's awesome. Yeah, he, he, those sorts of things that were behind the scenes. Um, 
as I mentioned, he was a reformer in so- of sorts with the Oblates. He was he was a reformer of sorts with the church in the U.S. too, with sex abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you hear a certain narrative in the media. There were there were some scandals that blew up on his watch. Uh, one that was particularly heinous. He didn't cover anything up. He didn't uh, you know try to protect anybody. Uh, he had staff that failed him. Mm-hmm. But in 2002, he you know <laughs> we're looking back after McCarrick and all that 2002 he said if we don't include the bishops in any provisions we make then we're wasting our time boy how prophetic was that right and you had Ted McCarrick working against that um, notion but behind the scenes uh, with with zero tolerance being codified in law and becoming something permanent Francis George was the real uh, uh, point person uh, all the way to the top uh, offices of the holy see he was the one pushing for that uh, against a lot of resistance mm-hmm. joseph ratzinger was about his only ally right uh in stuff like that so uh we owe a lot to him for that hmm. um i'm actually just curious I mean, there's actually, a lot more obviously yeah but i'm like actually as you just say that because like so okay now i'm just kind of curious because he's in boston cardinal law sees him as very important the Cardinal Law himself becomes, um, he does not handle the Boston stuff too well and everything. And, um, how, like, how, how do you know anything about their relationship after 2002? Well, see, their relationship went way back to the 60s. Oh, interesting. Uh, when Francis George was at the seminary in Mississippi that the Oblates ran, well, even as he was a seminarian. Uh, Cardinal Law was a priest of the Diocese of Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, interesting. And uh, they were actually both uh, acquainted with each other through um, civil rights advocation and stuff like hmm. that back in the late 60s. Hmm. And uh, they had kept in touch through the years. Law became a bishop in the early 70s um, and would be in Rome for this or that. And they kept in touch through correspondence and things like that. And then by the time Francis George was looking to come back to the States in 1986, Card- then Cardinal Law, Archbishop of Boston, was wanting to capitalize on George's intellect for this think tank that he wanted to start mm-hmm. to kind of bring John Paul's teachings into the U.S. culture. Um, so, yeah, by the time 2002 erupted, that was certainly something that was painful for George because he had a friend here. Mm-hmm. who was at the at the center of it all mm-hmm. um but i know speaking to people that were close to george that you know he he was he was greatly troubled by what had transpired but i think he was also you know nuanced enough to know that bernie law wasn't an evil man as right. he was portrayed to be okay you know um so i think what happened with cardinal law was that he let governance kind of slip out of his hands and he mm. trusted too many people and uh, didn't pay as much attention to things as he should have, and it all it all backfired. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. So but he was a good man, I think. You know. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, no, that's I, actually interesting to hear because, like, I I only I don't know much about Cardinal Law myself. I just you just know the few stories you've about the 2002 the Spotlight scandal and everything, yeah. but. But it sounds, and it is interesting, like how that role got, and it gets you to start asking questions. And, and I know it'll get us off topic, so I won't actually pursue it. But just around, like, okay, well, what does governance look like in the church? And are our dioceses too big that 
a bishop can't properly govern, right? Uh, are these Absolutely. problems? You know, these are these are these are questions we need to be asking, and I'm sure Cardinal George would have been eager to ask himself, yeah. right? And as it someone who probably was, it's probably hard. Like, what was what was governance? Let's maybe maybe let's look at the the. Let's look at the three minera of, of 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 things and 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 see how, what was he like as a bishop. Let's talk. Let's start with governance because so for people who don't know, like there's there are there are um to, it's to teach slash preach, sanctify and govern. These are your 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 three minera. The, the three works. The three the three works of the office. A, a, a priest has these as well in sharing with a bishop, but the bishop has it in its fullness, um, and in his local church. What was how was he in governance as a bishop in Chicago? Well, by his own estimation, it seems he thought he was a failure. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I found in some of his writings um, some intimate thoughts of his, and I think he felt uh, very much paralyzed by the state of the church and culture and society in Chicago, felt ineffective. Um, he he himself was not necessarily someone that would we regard as, you know, a very strong uh, in governance type person. He was, um, he was someone who trusted Providence. So when he came to Chicago, people told him, gut the chancery, fire everybody, start afresh. And he did not operate that way. Uh, I think that, you know, he, he was, as a bishop, he was always concerned about unity Mm-hmm. And I think he was always afraid to make any kind of rash decisions. He himself said, I was, I, I was too desultory at times. But he was too slow to make decisions at times, he felt. And I think that's because he was such a pastor. He was trying to be a pastor to everybody involved in these kind of strange, uh, thorny situations. Mm-hmm. And it kind of left him unable to decide sometimes right. uh, what the best course of action was. But uh, that being said, when you look at what his priorities were, uh, when he got to Chicago, they said, what's your pastoral plan? He said, I don't have a pastoral plan. <laughs> I don't have a five-year plan. That is I the best answer to- ever. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. That, is, that is the answer to give. It was like yeah, Pope Benedict's inaugural homily, right? I have no pastoral plan to offer the universal exactly. church. Let me reflect on the symbols of the papal office. <laughs> <laughs> that's right and and so you you see this uh, this kind of contrarian approach sometimes in in francis george right where he doesn't give the answers you expect and that would be one of them you know he's my job my job is to pray for the people of the archdiocese every morning at mass <laughs> and uh, people didn't know what to make of that you know um it was very confusing but he had you know in terms of like problems with governance when he first got to chicago he had a group of priests led by the cathedral rector himself who were writing to the nuncio asking for him to be relocated from chicago because they thought he wasn't qualified to be their archbishop uh which you know he never was a full-time pastor in a parish or anything but he had been a bishop for seven years at that point um and relatively you know successful bishop as we look at things but um, they just tore him apart. They called him Francis the Corrector because he had this kind of, uh, it could be interpreted, I guess, sometimes as, as abrasive if he thought that he was right and he saw something wrong and he would call it out, you know. Uh, so he'd come into a parish for a mass or something and tell them the liturgical things that were wrong. <laughs> and they, you know, they, Chicago priests do not like that. No priest probably does, but Chicago priests, you know, feel very territorial and 
the archbishop is more of a figurehead to them than anything else. Right. And, uh, and this was publicized. This was in the New York Times, and it was a big media crisis for him early on in his ministry there. And I think it shaped the tone of the rest of his time there because he, um, you know, wanted to work for unity among the priests, uh, but not compromise on what was most important. So hmm. I think in terms of governance, um, you know, he had a he had a Catholic approach, if, mm-hmm. if you could say that. Hmm. Um. And what about sanctifying? You know, when people ask him at the end of his time in Chicago before his retirement, what's your legacy? He often would uh, fight back on the question, but in his final mass as archbishop in 2014, he brought that question up. So people are asking you, he said, my legacy is if it's the people if you are somehow holier because of my ministry, hmm. that's my legacy. Hmm. And so I think he saw himself as the bishop, as the guarantor of the celebration of the sacraments and the preaching of the word and the sanctification of his people. Um, and he tried to lead by example, you know, through he, he regarded, um, uh, you know, the Eucharist is, as the council teaches is the source and summit of our faith. And he, he was a big advocate of, of Eucharistic uh, adoration in mm-hmm. his archdiocese. He was a supporter of, of consecrated life, but particularly cloistered communities. Uh, he, he felt that that was kind of the uh, power nucleus of the archdiocese. And mm-hmm. he threw a lot of weight into making sure that they were able to thrive. Uh, he invited one community back who had previously left the archdiocese, the poor Clares, and, and then the Carmelites in the Northern end of the archdiocese. And he, he would call them uh, with a lot of prayer requests when, mm. when he really needed stuff. Um, mm. So he knew he knew the power of prayer, um, but also, you know, I think in terms of this this sanctifying question, I think we have to look at his pastoral availability as well, because I think he saw that as as part and parcel to that mm-hmm. um, that office. And so, what you mean, pastoral always, and spiritual have to go together? imagine that right (laughs) what shock oh oh my gosh (laughs) sorry yeah (laughs) well he was always available to the people he was always available to his priests he would he 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 worked around the clock i mean he was he was always on the go but i recall a story in the book of of a priest who was at his office for a meeting from washington dc in his office in chicago and he, the phone rang, and the cardinal said, "I have to take that call." And it was, it was some lady who was in a parish that he met at some event, who probably had, you know, some sort of behavioral or psychological problem. But she wanted to talk to the cardinal on a regular basis, and mm-hmm. he said, "Well, that's fine. I'll give you my office number, uh, but you can only call on this day at this time, you know, once a month or whatever like that." But he was available. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, as I said earlier, the last to leave events. Uh, he would talk to anybody. He'd go into a big event at a big Chicago hotel fundraising dinner to give a talk. But he'd walk through the kitchen to come in and out, you know, and you have the wait staff who are minorities. And he'd speak to them in their native languages. Sometimes he'd sit there and have his meal with them instead of at the fancy head table. Uh, he, he was just a a real simple, approachable, holy guy himself. And so when he died, 
you saw the reverence that people had for him. The, the holiness that he called them to was something they saw in him. Mm-hmm. And you saw people lining, you know, the expressway as his body was brought from the cathedral to the cemetery. Or you saw people reverencing his remains at his funeral, uh, kissing his, his body. And it was a mm-hmm. really beautiful thing to mm-hmm. see. So uh, I think, you know, he, he definitely, through his own witness, inspired people to holiness. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I believe this one, this is the third to the last on purpose because it's one I can easily get more excitable about. And actually a thought hit me while we were talking that I have not thought about before. Because we're going to talk about teaching and preaching. I mean, this is a, an area where he had, I think in some ways, I think this is where he, def- at least on the public stage of the church, it seems to me, held a lot more sway. Like his voice... I carried beyond Chicago in this capacity. Oh, yeah. um, but at the same time, like he's not a Thomist. He's not communal school. He's not, um, not a Balthasarian. He's not, uh, he's not a liberal theologian. He's not concilium. He's not, um, he's none of those things. Like I think one of, and it's really strikes me. Cause I'm like, we, he's hard to, pigeonhole theologically in terms of a school because I think actually he stands alone in some ways. Even in his, when you read his writings, they're, they're incredibly accessible. Um, they're incredibly accessible. Um, and it definitely, it's funny because you can even, you can read that American pragmatist tone a little bit in the simplicity in a good way, but it's not in a bad way, but it's just, he's, he's, ent- he's entering the culture he's trying to speak to. Right. Um, and Not so, that he couldn't write in this right sort of academic stuff that you you know you would think, and but I, he he knew what his role was right. And I mean, I, I think if he if he were to ever have to lean to maybe a bit of this, maybe a little bit communio, just because he t- seemed to uh, repeat some of that stuff up. But he was never a communio theologian by trade, at least, at least no, like in terms of influence, was, right? Like he, he was, was communio adjacent. I would yeah, say. exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think if he, if anything, if he's going to be any school, it's probably communio adjacent. But he really did stand alone as a thinker. And I think that's actually quite fascinating. And I think that's something that's worth pondering and studying in the American context, because I think that's some of his, that's some of the areas of his legacy that can really grow. So why don't we talk about a bit like what, what is, what is unique about his thought? Is there anything uh, unique about it? I would just it? take a step. Yeah. I would yeah. just yeah. take a step back first yeah. and say that he's unique among the American bishops because, first of all, he was a religious. There aren't that many of them, yeah. you know. Second of all, he wasn't in a in a, a parish very long. He helped out in parishes, but he, he was not in a chancery structure. He never operated in that environment. But he was a religious who who was in administration for most of his life, although he had that background in teaching. So he had a really unique background. And I think that that's what's manifesting itself in his writing and teaching that you're talking about, mm-hmm. because he 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 had a real global perspective from having right. traveled to something like 45 countries while he was oblate vicar general, never staying in a hotel, always staying in the mission field, sometimes sleeping on bare floors and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, he had a real Catholic approach to everything, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so he had he had an experiential, uh, you know, depth that that a lot of American bishops just don't have by nature of their own background and life. He was simply Catholic. <laughs> ah, yes, yeah, a phrase he coined, of course. Yes, uh, and advocated for. Uh, you know, his thought was. Um, to Chicago, and they said, "Are you like Bernadine? Are you liberal or conservative? You know, what are you?" And he said, "Well, the Catholic faith isn't liberal, conservative. The Catholic faith is about true and false." Right. And um, so 
he, that's how he sort of approached things. Although then he wrote, he gave a famous talk once right before he was named a Cardinal and, and, um, uh, wrote it down into a talk, a, a paper eventually where he said a liberal Catholicism is an exhausted project. Uh, and he advocated for simply Catholicism right. and try to shoot these, these labels that, right. that we get bogged down in and the distractions that keep us from really living faith. I'm quite. I'm gonna go down a quick rabbit hole here. When you, I've not read this talk. I don't think, at least, maybe I have, but I'm forgetting. But um, when he's saying a liberal Catholicism, now is he meaning that? Into because there's two senses to the word liberal here. In the Newmanian right? sense. Thank you. That's what I was trying to get. Like the the French Revolution, classical yes. liberal, like that. What we con- what we kind of coined today as progressive slash liberal or conservative. That he's saying both aren't Catholic. Right. Yeah. Right. And that is right. that is still kind of if you think about it, that's still very um still very edgy thing to say in American Catholicism. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and I would say uh, you know, I think he he caused a lot of problems for himself in saying that. He was thinking he said I he, he's right. he, he is. He's absolutely right. Rouser makes the same argument. <laughs> Well, there are two peas in a pod in a lot of ways. I think I think so. I'm like, man, there's there's. It's actually interesting as you're speaking. I'm like, man, there's even more similarities. I didn't realize it the first time. <laughs> he made those comments first when he uh, knew he was going to be named a cardinal, but it hadn't been announced yet. And he said, at any sort of crisis point in my life, I turned to Newman. <laughs> That's what made him think about all this. So it's kind of his red hat speech, you know. But nobody knew it at the time. He was named a cardinal the next day or something, and. Uh, or maybe so, he was hoping it might dissuade them from naming him. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you never know, right? <laughs> oh, but man. so, so you know, as a teacher, though, I mean, yeah, he had two doctorates: one yeah. in philosophy, one in theology. The second one he got in Rome when he was living there at the Urbanianum. But as a bishop, he saw it very essential to teach through a column that he wrote, and that column was not just something people in Chicago read; that was read around the country and around the world. Because he was talking about things that mattered in a clear way, in a nuanced way, in a convincing way, in a helpful way, in a unifying way. So his columns are essential, and I quote from them because I I can't I can't summarize his words. <laughs> I had to let him speak as best I could. Uh, so those those some of those famous lines of his are in the book. But then he also wrote uh, three books while he was in Chicago. Uh, the last one, he was finishing in his, on his deathbed. And that's a beautiful, really kind of vade mecum for bishops about how to how to be teachers of the faith. Hmm. It's called a godly humanism. Mm-hmm. And then uh, beyond that, he was one of the most sought after bishops in the country for speaking engagements. And uh, he, he traveled all around the world giving talks. Uh, very, very influential there. Um, but then also, um, he was he was a voice of of, of reason and, and conscience for for the U.S. bishops. Many, many, many bishops, even those who were kind of opposed to him on some things, would say to me, whenever he spoke at the U.S. bishops meeting, we all listened because hmm. we all had something to learn from Francis George. Hmm. And so, you know, he was vice president and then president of the conference, and I think that his his clarity of thought was something that really could unify the bishops uh, at a time when they needed it, uh, 
particularly as we are facing threats within American culture and things like that. Mm -hmm. So as we, um, we're getting on into an hour here and there's still so much more to say, which is good because it means it was that long (laughs) because it means people there's, there's more to read in the book. But, uh, before we go to this, there's just two quick questions I wanted to talk about. Uh, um, we'll start with this one first because actually I think in some ways it's a reemerging topic that we really need to start to be paying more attention to. He was a man with the heart of the council in, in, in him. Like he was a great defender of the second Vatican council. And at a time where it seems like more and more, there's increasing doubts around the council again, there's increasing worries around the council again. And, and in so many ways, like what he went through as a priest and a bishop in the eighties and nineties, I think actually crosses over quite a, we're, we're kind of reliving 40 years ago in some ways different, but I mean, there's, there's similar fears, similar worries on, on a variety. Of, he never lost hope in all of that in the midst of the church. And he never changed his voice according to the, 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 the temper of the, of the, or the, um, you know, he was, yeah, he just didn't change his voice just because everyone else was saying, Oh, you know, the church has got to change everything. He never changed. He was always at the heart of because he kept the count and he, and he never lost hope in the council. Why is that? Why do you see the council so important? Well, I, he obviously saw the council as true. He saw the council as life-giving. He saw the council as a roadmap for how we ought to live the faith in the, you know, the times in which we find ourselves. Um, he saw the council as something that was unifying. He saw the council as something that wasn't liberal or conservative, but was a way to authentically live the Catholic faith in the 21st century. Uh, he, he wrote a column once, <laughs> will the real Vatican II please stand up? He hated, you know, how the council would get hijacked or attacked, depending on what side you were on. And uh, he he did what he could to give a real lived example of the council in the life of the church. Mm -hmm. You know, so all of his his teaching, all of his sanctifying, all of his governance is a real kind of masterclass in some ways of how to live the council, because, Mm -hmm. you know, not only was he you know, uh, a a virtuous person, or not only was he a clear teacher, but he was someone who was engaged in the culture. He was a real missionary to the culture. And so you talk to the Islam community or the Jewish community or the Sikh community or whoever in Chicago, he was a friend of theirs. And he was able to engage with them and uh, really build a unified society. Mm -hmm. He came to Chicago saying, I'm Francis, your neighbor. That's the council Mm -hmm. in some way speaking, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Uh, Because he was not not someone who saw himself as better than anybody, even those outside the church. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean he compromised on the faith, though, of course. Not at all. And he spoke about his love for Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel to his interlocutors and whatever religious uh, experience his 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 friends were, were adherents to. It's um, it's fascinating that you say all that because I think I think especially right there at, where you talked about how he saw his like mission field as the culture itself, where he was in North. And, and, and I think we can still forget about this. Actually, I think it's still, it seems like he was like a man standing alone doing the job of the council. And sometimes right. Whereby mm-hmm. like, actually that's what the council is asking of all of us, right. That we need to, we need to become, we need to be entering into the, we need to become leaven to the the dough of this culture. And because the church doesn't 
the church has a culture unto herself to an extent, but she's actually quite culturally neutral in so many. Like it's a very simple, like it's a very limited culture. There's a, there's Catholic culture for sure, but it's not it's not this Roman thing or anything necessarily. It's it's Roman because it's in Rome. I mean, it's American because it's also in America. That there can be a distinctive American Catholicism, but it, but it really it's. But it's a, it's an American Catholicism that allows the Catholicism to be the main actor, not the descriptor, right? And Absolutely. and I think and he saw that, and I he knew that, and he had that. That's, that was his confidence. And I think that the one sadness is not just him, but it's just like in, in a lot of things. I'm like, no one seems to be seeing the good that can do, the the fruit that can bear, because in the end, like we the the title of his last book, A Godly Humanism is precisely at the heart of the council. Like it's God best 22 and 24. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's good Christology. It's also, we want to propose to people, to the world that if we follow Christ, everything becomes better and more lifted up. You lose nothing of what is good, true and beautiful as Pope Benedict like to say. Right. So, right. and I think he saw that and I think, and I hope and pray that we can, that people will read his writings and read the biography to learn to get that master class in in um, how to live the council in a in a uh, liturgically reverent, theologically orthodox, properly broadly minded, and evangelically infused missionary way, he 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 is all that. Yeah, and yeah. and we need to it's learn complex and misunderstood though, isn't yeah, it? I mean, it you, is. it's not an easily understood position. And, uh, you know, this is a guy. Well, it's because of the position of the cross that he stared at when he was 13. Exactly. You can't take the story of Francis George without the suffering. His sister said he never spent a day in which he wasn't in severe pain. Yeah. So, you know, you have to look at all of it through that lens. It's not just physical suffering with the cancer that he had. I mean, I should say that, too. I mean, he had his bladder removed in 2006, an artificial bladder, and all the problems that came from that, and um, then two more bouts with cancer before it ultimately took his life. Mm -hmm. But uh, then he had the psychological suffering, you know, of crises and abuse and all these problems in the church that were at his lap. And um, it was was a, I wouldn't have wished his uh, duties on anybody. And um, yet, he persevered. His sister told me when she read the book, I never knew all the suffering my brother went through. Wow. He never complained. Right. He never let on, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think that's a real beautiful thing about him, yeah. that, that that's the cross. Mm-hmm. So one thing, he, he, and he wasn't, he wasn't naive. He was not a naive person. Like in his hopefulness, he was, he was not naive. Um, we were talking before and like, you know, he is one of these great churchmen in the proper sense of the word. Um, and, and so maybe this kind of end off like, okay, he was a man of hope for sure. Um, what was the heart Can of the we hope? Pause there and give yeah. that story. Like, you know, the, everybody probably knows about him, even if they don't know about him. Sure. You know, where he said, I will die in bed and my successor right. will yeah. die in jail and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. And usually right. that's where the story stops. Right. And I think getting at what you're saying about hope is the last part that was of this kind of uh, analogical sort of scenario that he presented, which anyway, that's a long, another story of how it got public. But uh, the last part is 
He said his successor will pick up the broken shards of society and put them back together as the church always does. Exactly. And that therein is the hope. And actually it answers the second part of my question, which is like, he had worries too about the church and its directions, Absolutely. but he knows that those who are faithful to Christ might have to suffer the life, the suffering of a martyr, but the church is greater than any evil because evil dies with each generation and new people arise with each generation and the church will continue forth. And he knows that. And so I think that gets to the whole Providence thing you're talking about earlier around his governance, right? He's like, it's not my job necessarily to save the church. It's my job to be faithful in the church. And that's all of our jobs. And I think that's a great lesson. I think that actually even helps us to see that, you know, he did, he absolutely, he absolutely worked behind the scene. And I think one of the things I really appreciate both by the book and also just knowing some of the other stories that I've heard from you or from others about him, when he saw problems, he was working at them, but always Mm. quietly behind the scenes. He didn't get in front of a bunch of press mics and say, well, this Bishop here, he's wrong because of this, or he would give him, he would give his brother a phone call. Right. Yep, he didn't he didn't absolutely. denounce his priests publicly because they weren't being obedient to him or pro abortion politicians. Right. Same thing. I know he would call him up and scold him, but he right. didn't le- leak that to the Chicago Tribune. You know, exactly. He respected it's, people as human beings. They exactly. weren't pawns to him. And, and and because of that, though, but also because of what the life like what that obedience thing you're talking about earlier, too, is obedience means that when you're in a place of leadership in the church and you're not essentially the pope. You recognize that a lot of the work you have to do has to be done behind the scenes in a non-public way for the good of the unity of the church. And in that trust and providence that you do what you can in the position you have, and the left, rest is left to God. And, and he I didn't would use try one to, example to yeah, back that yeah, up, yeah. if I could. Like yeah. there, there was a, a real scandalous bishop in his province in Illinois not long, a few years after he got to Chicago. People were saying, you need to do something, Cardinal George. You need to do something. Oh, you know, you're not doing enough. You're not... Well, the guy ended up resigning, right? But it was only because Cardinal George was really working behind the scenes, as I was able to find out, that no one else knew about, to get this guy ousted. Right. And, uh, you know, that's the sort of stuff that he did. And you don't get credit for that because yeah. you don't talk about it yourself. But no, because that's even, the martyrdom that you're talking and, about. That's the and martyrdom. The, exactly. And the guy he's trying to remove is still a human being. Yes, exactly. And the people in his diocese are still human beings. Exactly. Um, and we forget this you know, sometimes. His motto... No, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I was just going to say, no, go ahead. No, yeah, you're good. His motto? I was say his motto as a bishop, Christo Gloria in Ecclesia, to Christ be glory in the church. I mean, that's his whole and life. And he said, he's, it's his whole life, that's why I called the book Glorifying Christ. Um, that's the ultimate goal for all of us, too. And he said that... <laughs> The highest form, he wrote this once about his own motto, the highest form of giving Christ glory in the church is martyrdom. Yep. And I think that he really was a silent martyr in many ways. Do you know who else talks about martyrdom as the central life of the Christian? <laughs> oh, <could> possibly be. <laughs> and you know what? This is funny though. It's like, man, I am also not always the, this is why we don't do interviews all the time. Cause I'm like, I forgot to mention the title of the book at the beginning. So you just mentioned it. So thank you for that. Glorifying Christ, the life of Cardinal Francis George by Michael Heinlein. And I might try and get, I'll try and tell Nick to put a little thing at the beginning so people can know earlier on so they don't have to be wait. Although it's nice that they have to listen for the whole hour now to to get the title. But no, everything you're saying is 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 
is, and but it also, I think, gives us some comfort. Yes, there's stuff goes on in the church. Stuff went on in the 80s. Stuff went on in the 90s, 2000s, 210s, 220s. The church is still here. And she'll continue to be here. And we need not be hopeless, right? Like, I, um, we do what we can with the sphere of influence we've been given. We don't necessarily need to seek out a bigger sphere. Who wants more work? That's always that's my opinion. Who wants more? Why would you want a bigger sphere of influence? Who wants more? Who wants more work? But if it's asked of you in obedience to the church, you say yes to it for the good of the church. And if your sphere of influence, that you always use it for the good of the church. And and he was a man who you can tell even for me, and you really get this in the back. He's not a careerist in any way, shape, or form, and no. did not actually probably want. In any way, shape, or form, the the responsibility is given to him. But he took it on joyfully, out of love for Christ and His Church, because he always knew that right. you can't have Christ without the Church. Uh, you can't have one without the other. When the Church loses Christ, she becomes this political body of infighting. And when Christ loses the Church, you lose the ability to actually form a culture. And that's why they always had to go hand in hand. For him being the embodiment of those truths in yeah. many ways amen so uh i'm presuming that they can get this book any any place that books are sold yeah well as of now uh here in the first part of february uh it's available in ebook um mm-hmm. and you can pre-order it uh, wherever books are sold uh osvcatholicbookstore.com uh amazon wherever um mm-hmm. i saw target was selling it <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Uh, you can barely get it anywhere. So, uh, yeah, and that should be available uh, uh, first part of March. Yeah, I'm hoping it'll show up on Amazon.ca soon. It better start showing up on Amazon.ca soon or else <laughs> next time I'm down, I'll have to buy a copy off you. Um, but, uh, oh, well, you'll get a copy. Don't yeah. worry. Oh, don't worry. I know. It's just, but it's, uh, but no, it's, and, and just so people know, like the reviews have been amazing. The book really is great. It's really, I don't say this oh, because Michael's really, a friend. I've uh, been honored. Yeah. I don't say this because Michael's a friend. I say this because it really is a great work. And I mean, I, 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 I yes, I was blessed to help, you know, I'd read bits and pieces here and there with to, to get feedback or whatever, but it was really a joy to read. Like I really, because of that one encounter for me, it, it helped, that whole book helped me understand that one encounter I had with him. Oh, wow. Right. How beautiful. And I think it helped expand that little five. And I think that's what keeps the memory so strong for me is, is yeah, reading this book, you really get a sense of, of a man who's a saint, in my opinion. I agree. I agree. And you see that people leaving uh, prayer requests at his grave, flowers, statues, candles, pictures of sick relatives. People told me they felt he has interceded. Many bishops tell me they pray to him every day for hmm. his intercession. I think I think that you're right. To end with, what was the greatest joy for you in writing this book? And and what's and maybe to add greatest, to that quickly, what's your hope for people who read it? I think the the greatest joy for me was to encounter a disciple who I could not begin to question his is total dedication to Christ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're looking for stuff, right? You're trying to find like, oh, gee, you know, I I couldn't find anything that I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking to so many people, looking at so many documents, things like that, that I thought that there was for a moment uh, where he deviated from Christ. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure, you know, he's a sinner. We're all sinners, but he, he, he really was 
someone who knew Christ so well and who so faithfully followed him. I hope that readers encounter that, and I hope that readers find in his story, as you had said, a a story of hope. Mm -hmm. That, you know, um, here's a boy who was rejected, uh, who who couldn't say no to the Lord in spite of men telling him no. Mm -hmm. And uh, look what God did with him. (laughs) You can't make it up. You really can't. Well, that's beautiful. Well, so yeah, I encourage everyone to go order a copy and then order a copy for a friend to read it to. It's a great book. It, it's um, in my it's my hope that it's a biography of a future saint, and and we need these and uh, and I hope that it helps spread the cause of of devotion to him. Um, because Mike, people also don't realize like Michael is a he is uh, I don't know if that's the right word. He's a hagiophile. Like he just love you love the saints. You love the saints. I do. You yeah, do love sure. the saints. Yeah. And he's very he loves learning about all the obscure saints. And he just he loves this stuff. And I pray and hope that um, um, Francis George is uh, is named among them one day at the altar. Uh, I think it's a real necessity, and I think he'll be a great example. And, and hope and I know he's interesting for the church in America right now too. Always he's always going to be I interesting. Think that's for right. Them. Yeah. Especially the, a, Mary- a, especially the pragmatists. <laughs> yes, right. right. <laughs> See, the guys, prayer works. It's actually the most practical. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say pragmatist that he was. He once made a joke about how few cardinals are saints. And he said that uh, there are only like 12 or something. I don't know. And yeah. He said, uh, well, it's either because uh, if you want to become a saint, don't become a cardinal or Cardinals are so humble, they disguise their holiness very well. <laughs> <laughs> and right there, there's your best argument of a saint. He had a good sense of humor about himself. Yeah. yeah that's That to me is like the number one sign because it means you don't take yourself too seriously. You take Christ seriously. That's a phrase that he said that he learned when he had polio. A neighbor of his told him, never feel sorry for yourself. Hmm. Yeah, and that that reminds me. Don't take yourself too seriously. It's yeah. the same, you know. He, he really, he um, he, he didn't. He, he he abandoned himself into the yeah. arms of Christ crucified. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thanks for coming on, Michael. I hope. Uh, Thank you so much. I know. I know the book tour. The book, uh, not the book tour, but the book promo is going to be big, and it's already doing well. Uh, I saw the other day it was like number one in Catholicism and Amazon, which is huge. I mean, you got to be very happy about that and um i know how much hard work you've put into this and the toil you've gone through as well and it's worth it now right it's really worth it and i really want everyone you know it's it's worth to buy a copy of this and even if you if you and if you if you you know or go to your library and get it out of your library if you have to like whatever you have to do read read about this great churchman um a hopeful saint of the american church one day so thank you for coming on michael thank you so much i'm really grateful So thanks, everyone, for joining us, and we will see you on our usual Fridays uh, on our next podcast. Thanks. God bless you all. See you.